Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything. So this podcast is a reflection of that. Here, we speak on non-mainstream perspectives like personal growth in motherhood and relationships, awareness of the ego versus the soul, the voice of fear versus intuition. We discuss what it looks like to step into your power and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I'm obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and their babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is about women taking radical responsibility for their life, shedding victimhood for good. I was once told to try to go back into your childhood to your first memory of feeling. Feeling, not a memory, not a memory from a videotape, not a memory that someone else told you, but your first memory of a feeling in this life. And when I did this practice, I discovered that my first memory of feeling was when I was three years old. And I know I was three years old based on the timing of this story. My mom told me I'm three. So three is pretty early. It's pretty young. But when I was three, I got lost in a city, a town, a foreign town that I didn't know. It's not the town where I lived. And I remember this memory so vividly, but it, it doesn't feel like trauma for me. It was trauma for my mom. So what happened is we were visiting friends in a new town. I was three years old. You know, I'm from this community where there's big families, lots of kids everywhere. So there was just a bunch of kids playing on the street. And we started walking down the street and somehow we got out of sight of the adults. And I turned my back from the other kids. I'm three years old. I turned my back from the other kids and they were gone. And I didn't know where they went. But I didn't get scared. None of this story is me feeling scared, which is why it's such a pivotal story is I lost sight of them. I didn't know where they went. And I'm like, oh, I'm confident. Like, I know where they went. So I started walking. I started trekking, finding where my siblings and my friends went. But it wasn't in the right direction. And I started walking down streets and city streets at three years old, and I was completely alone. This is a pivotal story because... Your first memory of feeling in this life can really show you your personality and your soul signature. And it's true for me because this was a deeply traumatic moment for my mom because when all the kids arrived, I wasn't with them and I was missing. And and her mind direct, like immediately went to, 
oh my gosh, someone stole Leah. Someone stole her. And so she called the police. She, you know, she's panicked. She's so dysregulated. That's true fight or flight. Truly like the most frightening experience. And the worst part is that when she called the police, the police that showed up shamed her. Like, why aren't you keeping an eye on your kids? That's not what a mom needs in, in her most frightening moments of panic. <laughs> it's horrible. That's like horrible people skills. But anyways, what my mom felt and what I felt are two completely different things because I, I never felt scared. So I'm three years old, walking on these city town streets by myself, feeling so confident in where I'm going and that I know where I'm going, even though I was lost, which is a very interesting meaning in itself. That even though I was lost, I wasn't scared. I was confident in who I was. And that's who I am as a soul. I'm confident in, in my direction, in where I'm heading, what I see for myself. Even if, it, even if I'm lost, even if other people perceive me as lost, my inner world is confident. And knows the direction I want to be going. So I'm lost in this town when I'm three years old. And I was never scared. I was so confident in myself. And that's who I am as a person, as a soul. I'm walking these city streets and eventually this woody station wagon pulls up. And it's this couple... And they're obviously deeply concerned about walking, seeing a three-year-old walk streets alone. (laughs) So they brought me to a church. And then uh, the police eventually came and I was brought back to my mom. But that's my most pivotal memory of a feeling, my first in my life that, that I feel and I have so many memories on because I was alone. No one, no one could have told me what city streets I was walking down and what I felt because no one was with me. So these are memories I have for myself, by myself. And so this practice of go back to your first memory of feeling can really give you insight on who you are as a person. And that is so true for me in this circumstance. Even if I'm lost From the outside looking in, I'm bold and confident in where I'm going and what I feel. And and that is who I am so deeply. And I just feel like that story encapsulates who I am. So recently, another, another cool practice is asking yourself the question of who I who am I without my ego? Who am I without my mind? And that's really hard to separate because our, our identity is our ego. You know, who we are, who we pride ourselves on, our, our brain programming, pro, programming from childhood, you know, that all influenced who we are and what our ego is and our, our behaviors and our reactions. But it's still an interesting question. Who are you without your ego? And for me, 
Well, I think, well, then I'm my soul. I am my soul. Without my ego, I'm my soul. Because when we die, we lose our ego. And we are just our soul. So one night my husband and I were talking and I was thinking, with, without my ego, my soul, I feel like I am electricity. That's what my soul is, is I am this current that can turn lights on and illuminate things that you've not seen before in myself and others. That's, that's who my soul is. But also, electricity has the capacity to zap. Especially when you're not wanting it or you're, you're not ready for it. And that can also be my personality where I could really zap people unintentionally, but I, I zap people awake or I zap people triggering them. I really, I really deeply attract or repel people. Like it's very rare when, when someone feels lukewarm about me. <laughs> I, I, it's like you either really love me or you're really triggered by me. So I've had people on Instagram tell me that they have unfollowed me because they couldn't handle things I would say or question. And then a year or two or three later, they would refollow me because they're like, I get it now. I get it now. So I often trigger people when they're not ready. And then often people come back when they're ready. And that's kind of my soul. It's like electricity. It can illuminate things when you're ready, but it could also zap you uncomfortably when you're not ready. So I don't feel like it really needs to be said, but obviously I think that makes me, it's obvious that I'm an Enneagram 8. And in human design, I am a manifester. You can tell a lot by those two things. Um, but I wanted to do this episode because when I start listening to a podcast, I really deeply crave the story behind the person, the podcaster. What made you into who you are today? And I sometimes wish that there was a recap on the podcaster's life. Like their peaks and valleys that, that truly shaped them into who they are. So that's what I wanted to do today. My life story, I also feel so narcissistic for, <laughs> for making this. Like, oh, my life story is just so important. People want to hear it. That's, that's how I feel right now. But I'm doing it, like I said, because I am a deeply curious person. <laughs> deeply curious person where... All I do is ask questions, which is why podcasting is my dream scenario because I get to ask people questions and have conversations. So I am absolutely the most curious person on this planet. I could have an entire conversation with someone just asking them questions. So 
because I would be curious about someone else's life that I'm hearing on a podcast, I am doing this episode to, to cure the curious cats of people like myself that is that are interested in kind of a recap of a life story. And it's going to be hard. But it's also fun because I am going to try to say what I have learned from like the biggest pits of my life and how it carved me into who I am right now in this moment today. I grew up in Upper Michigan. I am a middle child with five siblings. So I am the third child of six siblings. I truly feel like I had such an ideal childhood in so many ways. My childhood was filled with nature. It was filled with play. It was filled with cousins and siblings. We camped every single summer multiple times. I was just so submerged in nature. We had an amazing house with seven acres of land where we spent almost every day outside in the summer, in the winter, in upper Michigan. It is like seven months of winter, eight months of winter. It is a long winter. It is a very unique area that just gets dumped on with snow. We have, we hold like records with snowfall. So our, our winters were spent having snowboarding in our own yard from the snowbanks that were created from plowing our driveway. We would snowboard down these little mountains in our yard. My dad would create homemade ice rinks in our yard and we would spend our days skating on an ice rink in the winter. And then in the summers we would camp, we would we would swim in Lake Superior, we would have beach days. My grandparents lived on the water and all of our cousins would gather at my grandparents and we would play and swim all day. I feel like it was such an ideal childhood for those reasons. I was able to have a childhood that was so rooted in community. I had a huge extended family. I have maybe a hundred first cousins and, and, and a lot of them were like siblings to me. We would sleep over and hang out all the time. So I, had the, I have this huge extended family that, and we are particularly close. They're not estranged. So to me, that is the biggest gift of my childhood is having so many siblings, having a large extended family, being so rooted in nature and having such an innocent childhood. I didn't, I didn't have any, you know, like sexual trauma as a young child or anything like that to steal my innocence. I had such an intact childhood in that sense. And I'm not saying it's perfect because I'm going to go on into other things. But until I was 12 years old, it truly was such an ideal childhood filled with nature and imagination and play and siblings and cousins. But in that same breath, there were a lot of siblings and a lot of cousins 
simply because we were in a fundamentalist religion where they don't use birth control. So they have this surrendering aspect of we will have as many children as God wants us to have. So that's why the families were so big. And it's, it's rooted in this fundamentalist religion with that practice of just allowing God to make the decision of how many kids for you. So that brings me to the fundamentalist religion I was raised in, which is a huge piece of my childhood because it programmed my subconscious mind in very specific ways. It programmed my subconscious mind, my, my brain. So the first seven years of our lives, our childhood, those first seven years are the most critical years of programming the brain. When we are born, our brain is a blank slate. Blank slate. And everything that that child hears and experiences and witnesses and is taught and is just uh, and just learns by observe, observing and being modeled behavior and being modeled how to live. That child takes it all in. They are wet cement and everything they hear and see and touch and experience and observe makes an imprint forever. So being raised in a fundamentalist religion shaped who I am because that was my childhood. That was the programming my brain got. And that just is what it is. I can't do anything about it. But through, I'm 34 years old now, and through my 20s and my early 30s, I have been learning self-awareness and doing the inner work of discovering what these brain programming and these reactions and these deep core beliefs about life are from that fundamentalist religion. And obviously from my parents and my family and everything, but what we are taught in childhood creates our beliefs about the world and ourselves. So the greatest of that religion was the large family and the many siblings, in my opinion. That's, that's the greatest gift that I can see f- from that religion experience. But the brain programming that I now deal with, a lot of people have it. You know, like whether you're fundamentalist Mormon or Christian, like Lutheran Christian, any fundamentalist or even, even a spiritual spiritual cult that is fundamentalist, that is so dogmatic in right versus wrong. And if you're raised in that, you get this brain programming stuck with you kind of forever. And I accept it now. Like I don't have, I don't have negative feelings. I don't have anger. It just is what it is. So I just observe who I am now. So the brain programming that has followed me into adulthood from this fundamentalist religion 
is that everything is black and white. Everything is right or wrong. There's no shades of gray. There's no duality. And my, my greatest thing is, is that I, I feel like I'm always right. Because in the religion that I was raised in, I, I absolutely remember thinking that everyone that was under the building of the church was right and they were being saved and they would go to heaven. But then my school friends, the people on the bus that didn't go to that church, they were wrong. So it created this brain programming of in-group versus out-group. And I was in the in-group that was being saved and we would be going to heaven. Our Our church truly, that church truly believes that they are saved. They are the Christians that are saved. And I don't think they believe that all the Christians in the world are saved. It's just that that, that denomination only. That's what I, I remember. So it created this brain programming of in-group versus out-group. I was on the in-group. I was right. I was saved. And everyone else was wrong. And that, that programming follows me into adulthood because my ego is always operating in I am right and everyone else is wrong. The way I believe is right. The way I eat is right. The way I think parenting should be is right. So my brain views many things as very black and white, very right or wrong. There's no shades of gray. There's no, oh, it can be right and wrong. There's no shades of duality. There's no gray. It's black and white. Because that religion had really set rigid rules on what was right and what was wrong. Um, Very body-specific rules. I don't really need to go into them, but it's like wearing a necklace was fine, but having pierced ears was very, very wrong. So there, there is an unwritten list of, of right versus wrong regarding the body, especially. And then, and then life and then lifestyle decisions, like nobody drank alcohol or I mean, not nobody, but it was an unwritten rule that you should not be drinking alcohol, which looking back, like that is absolutely something that I think is so right in that religion. Because when people do drink alcohol, some of their most shaming behaviors and their biggest mistakes involve alcohol. So if you take alcohol out of the equation, people are making less mistakes. People are making less detrimental decisions in their life. And that's something that I really respect um, I think our country has a really, really warped, uh, all, many countries, you know, like European countries, they, they use alcohol sometimes more than Americans. But anyways, alcohol is a drug and is the most normalized drug. It, it is such a warped, warped. <laughs> there are commercials on TV for alcohol constantly. We have commercials telling us to take drugs. That is just crazy. So from this religion, there's this very, there's this unwritten set of rules that you follow if you go to this church. And if you don't follow those rules, like there's a lot of judgment and you are regarded as bad and you are regarded as falling off the path. But all of those, those rules, those lists of rules really, 
made me cling on to veganism when I was 22 years old. I found veganism. <laughs> I just say it to me, veganism is a religion because being vegan is you become an in-group to a group of people. You are in the in-group. You are a part of the vegans now. And there is a list of right and wrong. You do not eat cheese. You do not drink milk. You do not engage with leather. You do not eat honey. That's from a bee. You do not partake in the suffering of animals. It's a very blatant list of right versus wrong. And to my nervous system, that felt so safe. Oh, I, I'm leaving this religion, so I'm going to be a vegan now and be on the in-group of this vegan group and listen to this list of right versus wrong. Because a list of right and wrong feels safe to me. It, for, if someone can tell me what to do of don't do this and, and do this, it feels safe to me because that's what the religion was about. Is there's a list of rules that you follow and if you don't follow, you are regarded as bad or falling off the path and there's judgment on that and then there's shame with that. So this is why veganism attracted me so deeply it's an in-group versus out-group belonging the the need to belong and the another brain programming that I got from religion is that that God is actually very scary I feared God so intensely I did not love God I have feared God most of my life. And it was a moment in Guatemala around 2012 in which I was in Guatemala at this personal retreat and I was situated to go to a cabin on top of this cliff and it was dark and there was about 300 steps I had to step in the dark alone in the jungle of Guatemala and it's such a privileged situation where I paid money to go to this retreat. But this walk in the night, in the woods, alone, was terrifying. Terrifying. I did not want to do this walk. It, it, it was paralyzing me. The fear was paralyzing me. But during this walk, I started saying, like, F you, God, in my head. And I caught myself saying, oh my gosh, no, you can't say that. You can't say that because God's going to punish you. And that was the moment in my life where I faced that I was afraid of God. I was so fearful of God. And you cannot have a healthy relationship with someone that you fear so much. So that's when I had to start repairing my relationship with God. And that is... <laughs> That is from the programming of my childhood because the fires of hell scared me so deeply. Because if you sin, there is this punishment of fires of hell. And as a child, that terrified me. That is the most scary thing. And that's, that's teaching from a place of fear. And this is why I, I, I cannot get on board with the Bible 100% because hell is such a human-made construct. It is 
a form of punishment to get you in line. That is, that is parenting, that is teaching life from fear, which is not what God is. God is unconditional love and there's absolutely no room for fear. It's a whole other tangent. That's a whole other tangent, but in my mid-20s, I faced that I was terrified of God. So I actually didn't have an authentic relationship with God. And that's when I had to start repairing that. And I did. And I did hypnotherapy to try to reprogram those subconscious beliefs of that God punishes me and God takes things away from me. And if I'm not perfect and if I'm not good, God will take someone away from me. So that's another way the brain programming has followed me into adulthood that I haven't had a truly safe, authentic relationship with God. And I think now I do, uh, but it's, it's taken many years. So anyways, the religion obviously influenced who I am. But it also influenced me in a good way in which I didn't feel like questioning was safe in that environment when I was a child. And I came out of the womb asking why. So a lot of my questions were, were shut down and were shamed. I have very, very vivid memories of being shut down with my questions. So questions inevitably were not safe anymore. Um, but I remember being a child and, and, and being deeply conflicted about thinking about these deep deep scenarios in which what if there was this jungle boy born in the jungle and he never heard of Jesus but God placed him in the jungle God placed him and in his life and he never made contact with Jesus he was never introduced to Christianity so does that mean this jungle boy goes to hell but God made him be born in the jungle. So how could God create this jungle boy and then send him to hell even though he never met Jesus and wasn't saved? So when I was a child, I would think about these scenarios and be like my soul was so conflicted of how this could be. This isn't right. This isn't right. I always felt it was not right. It could not be. That could not be God. God could not create that soul and then send it to hell. I just, as a child, I felt this. But ultimately, I don't feel like I really had a true, true, true belief in God, even though I, I went to a religion my whole childhood. They were not my own beliefs and they weren't my own opinions until my dad died when I was 12. And that was the biggest disruption of my childhood, clearly, obviously, because he died tragically in a car accident. Boom, one day, gone. I was 12 years old when I learned the truth of life, that life means nothing is guaranteed and someone can disappear out of thin air one day. And that is the reality of life. And so my innocence was, was kind of taken at 12 years old because I was now in the throes of real reality, of our mortality, 
that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And it was the most traumatic, you know, dark time of my life, of course. But it also shaped me to live in a completely different way because I now know the truth of life. Death has always been a present theme in my life. So I don't pretend that I am, I am guaranteed to live to 100 years. Death is very present in my weekly life where I, I reevaluate now as an adult. I, I weekly or like almost weekly reevaluate. If I were to die this week, am I, am I living the way I want to be living? Am I having relationships the, the way I want to have relationships? Because I know the truth of life. I am not guaranteed tomorrow. So my dad dying at 12 changed everything because immediately I started seeking a deeper meaning to his death. I was like, where did he go? What just happened? And when you are in those deepest pits of hell, of suffering, of darkness, you seek anything that will bring you peace, even just a moment of peace. And something that brought me so much peace when my dad died was dreams. I would have very rarely dreams of him in which I knew it was real. I was in a dream with him and his soul was there and it was real. And I, and I felt him and I saw his eyes and I looked in his eyes and I knew his soul and I felt it. I felt him and I knew that dream was real. So I knew he was still there. His soul was still around or somewhere. And, and dreams gave me so much peace. And then it reminds me of my story has paranormal activity in which months before my dad died, one morning, my mom and I said to each other, I had the strangest dream. I had a dream, I had a dream that dad died and my mom gasped and said I did too on the same night months before my dad died my mom and I had the same dream that my dad died the same night and I remember going to middle school I was in eighth grade I remember going to school and telling my friends I had a dream my dad died and they would all say oh you're fine you're fine that doesn't mean anything and none of that reassured me because I knew deep down. I knew. I remember. I remember all of this because I knew something was off. And then he died in July on a hot summer day where I woke up and the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and life was so perfect and then it wasn't and that's how fast life can change once you feel that you are forever changed so immediately dreams became my moment of peace or or sleep in general sleep was my peace because when you sleep, you forget about the nightmare you are living. 
And then when you wake up in the morning, you're, you're confronted with the nightmare of your life. And sleep is, in, in, in the nightmare of life, in suffering, sleep is the only peace you can really get. But dreams of my dad were moments of peace. And then also we were given this near-death experience book that first week he died. We were given a near-death experience book. And this woman details how she died and went to heaven and came back to life. And that was the book. And there's many books like this. But it was life-changing for me because I was confronted about how this woman who did not go to my church went to heaven. I was like, she doesn't go to my church. How did she experience heaven? Well, now I'm faced with someone's telling a lie because I thought only people in our church go to heaven, but this woman went to heaven. And her experience of heaven really made me feel a lot of peace about my dad dying. Obviously, that's why we read, that's why we read the book because it gave us peace of, okay, our dad is in a safer place. His, our dad is in joy. Our dad is in bliss. We're the ones suffering with his absence. We're the ones in hell and he's in bliss. But that near-death experience book changed everything for me. Because then things weren't really adding up. I was just like, how could this person go to heaven if they don't go to our church? And that's when I really started questioning a lot. And I've always questioned things, but I felt more brave in questioning things after my dad died. And then there was other things that happened in which my mom saw my dad's soul. Like my, my mom saw my dad after he died in a room of people. And so weird things like that happened where it's like paranormal activity where it's like, okay, what's happening here? What is happening? Because I thought paranormal activity only happened in the Bible. And those were the only safe stories where angels talk to you. And it's allowed to be in the Bible, but it's not allowed to be in real life. We're not allowed to experience it in real life. So... I do think my mom started experiencing situations where she would see my dad. And that's when we started changing our beliefs. Like, how could this be happening? And it really confronted us. It made us confront a lot. These paranormal experiences made my mom reevaluate how we communicate with God. And she, instead of communing with God at church or through church or through a church, we started realizing that we can commune with God by ourselves or commune with our guardian angels. And so that really changed our perspective. It became less of a a church thing that we don't need a church for God. We need our own relationship with God. And that changed a lot. But but the paranormal activity kind of is what changed a lot of that. So it opened my mind and our mind in our house to the gifts of psychics, which I do believe people have certain gifts because it's, it's prevalent in the Bible. People have gifts in the Bible. People have gifts nowadays. 
But looking back, I've used psychics a few times in my life and looking back, I'm very grateful for my experiences, but now I don't engage with psychics because I know it's for my mind. I know it's for my mind's need to know. I feel so uncomfortable with mystery. If I feel so uncomfortable with the unknown, I want to run to a psychic for them to tell me something. And so that in itself is kind of bypassing the relationship with God. But I think everything serves its purpose. I don't regret anything I've done with psychics. That's the journey. I had to outsource that to now know that I have that ability just between me and God ourselves. So I think, you know, engaging with psychics or healers is usually for the mind's need to know instead of resting in mystery. So I don't engage with, with psychics at all anymore. There's no point. It's just for my mind. My mind does not need to know. I can sit in mystery now. I can sit in the unknown. But when I was 17, I was a senior in high school. I had a psychic reading. And the psychic said, your dad is saying you need to go to college. You are going to regret not going to college. And at this point in my life, my dream was to be a nanny in California. I did not want to go to college. So I did not take all the AP biology classes in high school. I just skated by. because I'm like, I'm not going to college. And I actually love that I had that programming. Or I mean, it's not programming, but I just love that I wanted to do my own thing. And I wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to go to college because everyone else does. For some reason, a nanny in California was my dream. Don't know why, don't know how, because having a boss is not how I operate. So I had this psychic reading. She's like, you need to go to college. Your dad is saying it will be your biggest regret if you don't. And I was bawling at this. I did not want to go to college. But in, in, in maidenhood, at 17 years old, I took the advice of a psychic. I took the advice and that's kind of what you do in your youth is you take advice from other people and then you just listen to other people. And thank God I did because I met my husband at college. (laughs) Okay, so, and now looking back, college was such a precious time. Such a precious time. Um, I think college now, what, um, 12, 13, 14 years removed from college the price of college has changed a lot. If I have kids, I'm not going to pressure them to go to college. I think it's a broken system now, but it was still cheap. So I did not have to go into major debt. I'm not a classic American story of being so heavy in debt, leaving college. That's not my story because I lived at home. I loved living at home while going to college, but I met Malcolm, my husband, and that's a big piece of the story. But again, with Malcolm, this story of meeting Malcolm, there's paranormal activity. There is. So I saw a psychic, a different psychic, who truly was more like a therapist because I still have the tape recording and the things she was saying to me was truly, it was like a therapy session. So she's like an intuitive healer is more so what I call it. And... At that time in my life, I was obsessed with this one guy. It was an obsession. And I was starting to like restrict my eating because I wanted to look a certain way for this guy. And she was, she was said, Leah, you are walking down a dark path 
to an eating disorder, you need to stop what you're doing. And there is this other guy waiting in the wings if you can let go of this other guy. There's a different guy for you waiting in the wings. And she detailed Malcolm precisely and perfectly. She said, his name starts with M-A. M-A, Malcolm. She didn't say Malcolm. She said, his name starts with M-A. She said, he's 6'2". He has dark hair. He's an athlete. That's what Malcolm is. He's 6'2". He has dark hair. He was a hockey player. She detailed Malcolm in this psychic reading. So that did put someone that has dark hair, 6'2", M-A name, on, in, my, in my brain space. I did become aware of that. But the other paranormal activity story that happened with Malcolm and I is that I knew of Malcolm and I was very intrigued by him, but I was very scared of him because he had, of what I saw, a lot of confidence. And that was so scary. He knew what he wanted and he went after what he wanted. And that was very scary to me. So um, I was a high school, I was a senior in high school or a freshman in college. This was the timing and he was in college. And I knew of him, but I didn't know him. We were Facebook friends. And I read in the newspaper that he just got knee surgery. And I knew of him, so I'm like, oh, he just had knee surgery. And then that night I had a dream that he messaged me on Facebook and said, Leah, can you come take care of me, help me with my knee? And the next day, he messaged me on Facebook asking, hey, can you come take care of me? I just got knee surgery. I didn't even know the guy. But I literally had a premonition dream. And then it happened that next day. And mind you, I, I've never hung out with him. I did not know him. I don't think I had the, his phone number. We were just Facebook friends. That is a crazy story. So again, just like my dad dying, I had a dream prior, months prior. Now with Malcolm, I had this dream where I had a dream that he messaged me about helping him and then he did. So that was crazy. Then we started dating at some point after that. And we dated all throughout college. It was a very easy relationship, I would say, because we never really had drama. We always wanted to hang out. We were always obsessed with each other. And then when I was a senior in, high, in college, a senior in college, I started taking pictures with my digital camera. And then one day I woke up and I'm like, I'm going to make this website called Vienna Glen Assorted Artwork. I did paintings, I did greeting cards, I did photographs. And one day, boom, I got this idea, make this website. Vienna Glen Assorted, Art, Assorted Artwork. I didn't even really think of the word Vienna Glen that much. I just loved the name Vienna and my dad's name was Glenn. So I'm like, oh, Vienna Glen, okay, 
great, perfect, made this website for my creative expressions to be sold. But what happened was people started asking me to take their family pictures. And then people started asking me to shoot their wedding. And I went to college to be a therapist. So I went for psychology. I wanted to be a marriage therapist. I wanted to be a relationship therapist. That was always my interest. But it, it, did, it did take me flunking a chemistry class a freshman, as a freshman in college. When Melk and I started hanging out, I put my classes on the back burner and I, I think I got a D in chemistry because I hate, hate science. So flunking that class made me reevaluate. Oh my gosh, I cannot be in the major of exercise science. This math and science is not my, my, my dream. I hate it. I need to pivot. And I was always so overly invested in my friends' relationships, like helping them and coaching them. And I'm like, I need to be a marriage therapist. So I changed my major from exercise science to psychology. So I went to college to be a marriage therapist. But then in my senior year, I started taking photographs. And when I was in middle school, Taking film photos was my hobby. I took film photos of my cousins in middle school and it was my passion. It was my hobby. It was my everything. So when I started taking photos again, when I was a senior in college, it was just like a remembering of my childhood. Oh, I love taking photos. This is what I did as a child. It was like reverting back to my childhood hobby, which is why it felt so good. So then I started taking pictures of children I started taking pictures at people's weddings and I became a photographer not my plan it was not my plan at all but it felt so good I was it would light me up it was my passion I loved it so much and if I wanted to be a marriage therapist I had to go and get my master's I had to go to more schooling and I did not want to go to more schooling So I became a photographer, but not with the intention. It just happened. It just snowballed. And I am so grateful. I am so happy. 13 years later, it is still my passion. It is still my everything. So I was a wedding photographer for about a decade. And right before 2020, I got the intuition to slow down stop traveling stop being so busy with wedding photography and live a slow still life so now I only specialize in in in-home family candids because that is my everything I could do that every day for my entire life and never get paid it is my everything so ultimately I did not need my college degree But it was the most precious time of my life. And that is where I met my husband. And I loved my college experience deeply, deeply, deeply. So I was a photographer and I still am a photographer. And it was the greatest thing because I've been my own boss for my whole 20s, my 30s. I have my freedom. I make my own money. I can work as much or as little as I want. 
And right now I have the support of my husband a lot more because I stopped shooting and traveling from weddings. I was hustle. I was in the hustle. I was in the grind. I was a boss babe. I was making lots of money. I was traveling all the time and I loved it. I loved hustling when I did. I hustled because I loved it and I wanted it. But then it changed. And then I craved stillness and I craved slowness and I craved prioritizing relationships in my life because I had no time for anyone. So right before 2020, I made that that life shift and it was the most perfect timing. You can't plan that. So in my 20s, while I was a wedding photographer, in 2012, my husband and I chose to move to Phoenix, Arizona because we loved it. I was raised in Michigan. I went to college in Michigan and he played a little bit of professional hockey after college. But then he's like, no, I want to be a personal trainer. I want to work with athletes being their trainer. So we chose Phoenix, Arizona because we loved it so much. We are obsessed with the desert and we moved here in 2012 and it's been our home for more than 10 years now. And we love it. We don't ever see ourselves moving. We are obsessed with the desert. But during my 20s, while living in Phoenix, the biggest darkness of my life happened when my husband and I split up for a few months. It was a huge, traumatic life event that was so similar to my dad dying. It was the same darkness. It was the same. I felt like I was in the deepest pit of hell. Even I would, I would like, while driving on the highway really fast, I would think, what if I just swerved and got in a car crash? Because that's where your mind goes when you are in the deepest suffering. You want it to end. You want your pain to be gone. And I never, I never felt alarmed by those thoughts because I just know it's human to not want to feel that level of pain. But splitting from my husband for a few months in my 20s was a, the biggest pivotal moment of my life beyond my dad dying. Those are the two massive, massive life moments that started with a sunny day and the birds chirping and then boom, blindsided. Life changed forever. And I have a lot to say about this time and I'm going to just try to recap it in such a short way because this could just be a full hour in itself. But it is through this time where I learned I truly don't have control in life. Because I really, really, really try to have a masculine shield of controlling and distrust of men I think because of my dad dying. It wasn't my dad's choice, but it was still a trauma that I endured of the masculine. So I took on this masculine shield and I tried to control my husband to try to keep me safe. And then it backfired. And then it actually created the very situation I feared the most, which was losing him. And it was through this experience that 
I learned the the depth of control issues and I learned that not getting pregnant for the year or two prior to our separation was for me because we have been trying to get pregnant for almost a decade I think and we tried for maybe a year and a half or or a year or two before our separation and then when we were in our separation I felt the deepest pits of hell and I and I tried to imagine imagine I, I was a mom through this imagine I was a mom I couldn't live and people do it every day that is a strength I can't understand that separation with my husband taught me that not getting pregnant was for me because if I got pregnant the minute I wanted to get pregnant, I would have been a mom through a separation. I would have had to co-parent with him through that. And that's when I really started to view not getting pregnant as it's for me. It's protecting me. And I don't need to always understand what or why, but it is protecting me. So this separation taught me that I don't have control in life, that the things I pray for and that I don't get are for a reason and it's for my protection. And I could never have planned this. I could never have seen this coming. But now I'm so happy with not getting what I wanted, not getting pregnant. So I, I got the most valuable life lessons through this. And then once we, we repatched and we worked on our marriage and we got back together, we went to therapy for the first time ever when we got back together. And that's when the therapist laid it out. These are the inner workings of your marriage. This is how you're replaying your childhood. You know, where my dad left me, I was abandoned, he died on me. And I distrust the masculine. And then I kind of recreated this situation with my husband in marriage then. And my husband has his own 50% role in the marriage where his behavior is from his childhood. We learned and saw the beauty of therapy, of a therapist saying, you react like this and you behave like this because of your childhood. You are replaying the dynamics of your childhood in your marriage. And we woke up to that and we saw that through therapy. And we went to therapy for probably a year and learned so much. But it's been many years since then and we are still working on our inner workings in our marriage. Because our most recent thing is fully recognizing that my masculine shield of controlling and distrusting him in, in just life ways, you know, like, hey, take out the trash. Can I, take, can I trust you to take out the trash when I ask you to take out the trash? It, it's little ways of trust, it's little ways of trust in, in all relationships. And he takes on this passive role because I am in the masculine. So he is too feminine and I am too masculine and this is what ultimately creates discord in a relationship this is a very 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 common pattern 
I am not in my feminine enough. I am not balanced. We all have feminine and masculine. But my, my masculine is running my show. And his feminine, his p- passivity and nonchalantness and, and non-leadership is running his show. And it's because of our past. It's because of our childhood. It's because of the things that have happened in our life that made me need a masculine shield to protect me from getting hurt. So I try to control everything to avoid getting hurt. But then it eventually attracts what I'm afraid of anyways. I get hurt anyways. I've endured hurt because of this controlling behavior. So it's, it's been years since our separation, but we're still working on these inner workings because we've been together for 16 years and some patterns are so solidified that it's very hard to reprogram. But right now in this moment, we are so focused on the polarity of masculine and feminine in our house right now. Malcolm needs to step into his masculine to lead us, to be the leader of our home. And I need to step into my feminine and surrender and trust him to do that. That is what we are solely focusing on right now. And it's years after the separation. But ultimately, the separation happened because we were so disconnected. I was so controlling that I was repelling him and making him so passive and so disconnected because he felt like he was doing everything wrong all the time. And it's a 50-50 relationship. We both had our roles. But we lacked this deep, intimate connection. We both are deeply afraid of truly being seen, that true vulnerability. And we mirror that to each other. So we each have our own coping mechanisms. His is shutting down, crawling into a cave, being numb, numbing out, walking away from me, disconnecting from me, while I'm trying to poke and prod him and control him just to get a response, be like, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Are you here for me? We, realize, we, we learned in therapy that there's usually one person in a relationship where they are poking and prodding and trying to get a response because they want to know that you are there for them. Are you here for me? Because the other person is so numbed out and zoned out and, and passive and shut down that it creates this huge disconnection. It creates this huge wedge between partners. So our separation is ultimately the biggest blessing to us. Even though it was the darkest moment of my life, it is the most grief along with my dad dying. It was the most grief and suffering I have ever felt. I lost so much weight. It was the darkest time of my life. But now looking back, It is the blessing that we needed to build a stronger foundation and face our very unhealthy habits, our very unhealthy communication habits, 
our patterns that we started when I was, you know, 18, when he was 22, when we got together, we were babies when we got together. And, and they say, you are attracted to someone because it's a trauma bond. And we started our relationship with these communication tactics and these roles of me with this masculine shield being controlling and him being passive which ultimately cannot create and foster the most intimate safe bond because you're kind of at war with each other because you're replaying your childhood dynamics and so we're we're still we're still working on it but now it's not necessarily um like childhood dynamics and patterns it's it's him stepping into his healthy masculine where he can lead us and he is the leader of our house because women are the navigation system we use our intuition to be like this is where we're going in life and then men go into the driver's seat and they should be driving the unit the family to the destination Women are the navigation system and men are the drivers. Another way I see this is women pick up the baton of this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. This is the way I see things. And then we need to pass it to the man to run the rest of the race, to finish, to lead. We need to trust that they can take the baton from us and they can lead us. So it's about Stepping him stepping into his masculine, healthy masculine, where he feels confident to lead so that I can step into my feminine and trust him and surrender. So that we are both in, I'm in my healthy feminine and he's in his healthy masculine because so far we have not been operating. We have been operated from our woundedness. He's a wounded male, so he's passive. I'm a wounded female, so I'm masculine. And ultimately, if we already had a kid, we would have been showing them this unhealthy masculine feminine dynamic in our house without even knowing it. Our house would have seen, oh, mom is masculine, dad is feminine. Oh, this is what masculine feminine is. That is unhealthy. That is what creates discord in marriage a child then sees that and then grows up and recreates that in their partnership in their marriage they perpetuate the cycle just by observing it in mom and dad so if we had a kid already if we got pregnant when we wanted to we would have been in this very unhealthy masculine feminine pattern that our child would have seen. And I feel protected. I feel protected by not becoming a parent yet. And that's the story I tell myself to have peace about not getting pregnant. But it feels peaceful to me. It feels that God is for me and my body is for me and that my body is preventing pregnancy for me. And that's the next thing I want to move into is how not getting pregnant has shaped me completely. 
completely. I have learned everything by not getting pregnant versus most people's life experience and their route is learning everything from their child. And if I ever get pregnant, I will learn many things from my child. But my life experience is different because I am learning everything with the absence of a child. And most people learn everything from the presence of a child. So I now see that almost a decade ago, I wanted to get pregnant because it was the next thing externally that could potentially bring me happiness because I wasn't ultimately fulfilled yet. So I thought, oh, oh, a kid, you know, I got married, I got the man. What's the next thing society says will bring us happiness? A child. But then also in my childhood, I truly feel like motherhood was amazing. I was surrounded by mothers that loved mothering. My own mom loved mothering. That felt like the ideal. That felt like the way to happiness because I was around women that were mothers that were so happy. So I wanted that. Which is interesting because my sister is two years older than me and she has a completely different perspective on mothering from our childhood. She doesn't want kids because of it. So we grew up in the same family two years apart and we are on opposite ends of the spectrum in regards to our perception of motherhood and mothering from our childhood, which is fascinating. I, I always thought I would be a young mom. I always wanted to be a young mom. And that just has not been my life story. I wanted that, but God did not want that for me. So my life story is totally different than I ever thought. And ultimately, I feel protected. Ultimately, I am so happy it has not happened yet. Because I'm 34 years old and I just now am feeling like I'm the most ready or healed which you're never ever fully healed I don't I don't like that word but I am just aware of my programming my reactions I know if I have a kid my my instinct will be to control my husband's the way he fathers the way he parents and I don't want that if I had a kid 10 years ago I would have done that I would have used my controlling behavior to control his parenting and I don't want that I want to trust him I want to fully be a team a teamwork together and fully trust who he is as a parent and trust myself so I also wanted to become a mom because I just want to feel like a woman every woman in my childhood was a mother and through meditation one time I discovered that I have wanted to become a mom because I wanted to feel more like a woman. I wanted the woman, the feminine experience of growing a baby and breastfeeding and birthing. That is the feminine experience in this life and it is so innate to want that, to desire that. That's nature. That's so natural. But it's also my childhood that showed me that to be a woman is to be a mother because I don't think I really knew a woman that wasn't a mother. So I've been just like waiting 
to feel like a woman. I feel like I'm still 20 years old. So I'm using this time to really become solid in who I am and who I am as a woman and drop that masculine shield of controlling because I would then control my child. The way I want to control my spouse is the way I would show up as a parent and then control my child because ultimately I don't feel safe in life. I don't trust life. So not getting pregnant has been my greatest journey to trust. It's been my greatest journey to trust my body because my body is not broken. I am not infertile. I am not broken. There is nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with my husband. And then there's never been anything wrong. But my body is me. And my body is preventing getting pregnant for a reason. And I don't need to know that reason. But I need to trust my body in why it's preventing. My body's choosing not to get pregnant. My egg is choosing not to create a baby. Full stop. My body is choosing that. And I have to respect that and trust that. That is where my journey has led me. Is a deeper, deeper embodiment of trust of life and my body. That is the greatest lessons of not getting pregnant. Because typically the minute you do not get pregnant when you want to, who do you become? Anyone that has lived through this where they didn't even get pregnant for one or two months, no, they start going mental. Who do you become when you don't get your way? Who do you become when you don't get what you want? Not getting pregnant is what unearths this in women. You become this ultra controlling human that feels this wrath of why am I not getting what I want? And then typically you feel entitled to a baby. Then you go to the Western medical savior of make me pregnant. Make it happen. My body's broken. Make it happen for me. Force my body to make it happen. So opinion and perspective is that going to science to make yourself pregnant and to force your body to do something it's not naturally doing is the energy of distrust. Distrusting the body, distrusting life, distrusting God, distrusting nature. And that is not the energy that I believe in living in. That is not what I align with. I have a lot of opinions about the science of fertility and how just immoral it is. So I don't ever see myself going that route, but I I have peace with that. I, I have complete peace with that. It's not in alignment with my values whatsoever because I believe it's distrust and it is the absolute need for control. And the entitlement of believing you deserve a baby and that you're entitled to a baby, which, which we're not. The biggest piece to not getting pregnant for as long as it's been 
is that it took me so many years. It's only in the past year that I finally, finally faced that I have had the expectation that I will become a mother and the expectation that I will get pregnant in my lifetime, which is natural. I think that's just a natural thing to feel. But that is, the, that is why it's so suffering when you don't get what you want, is because there's an expectation. So even through many, many years, I still have the expectation that I will become a mom. I will get pregnant. But through this Yeshua book I have, I have learned that there's, a, there's an energy difference between expectation and hope. So in the past year, I have finally shifted in, in the most beautiful way in this whole journey of not getting pregnant in which I moved from expecting that I will get pregnant in this lifetime to hoping I do and facing the reality that it might not be in the cards for me because that is a potential that I've never faced. I never ever have faced the real reality that it might not be in the cards for me because that's too scary to face but that's because it is my greatest desire and it's always been my whole life. So to not get the one thing I desire, the main thing I desire, um, it's really scary to face, but that has been the greatest medicine in the past year is facing the real reality that it might not happen for me. And my goal is to feel at peace with that. And, and there's moments where it feels cruel. You know, like how could God put that desire in my heart and, and, then, I, and then I don't get it? It's, there's like parts of me that's like, that's just cruel because my passion is, is home birth. That's, that's all I love to talk about. It's all I love to research and, and find women who home birth and free birth. That's my everything. And so there's like, there's aspects of me that's just like, how, if I don't ever experience that, that's just cruel. But ultimately, I see how my passion of home birth has inspired women in my life to then home birth. And babies have been born in peace just because of my passion and sharing my passion. Women have heard that passion and then chose a peaceful, loving home birth and their babies were then brought into the world in peace and love because of my passion that awoke another mother. And there's some days that that's enough for me. And then there's other days where that's not enough for me. And I want to experience it myself. But I, I'm, I'm, I just try to sit in all of it. It's, it's so human. It's so human to want what you want and desire and long for things. But ultimately, I don't have control. I don't have control. And I could, I could take the reins of control and go to science and say, make this happen for me. But to me, that is a more suffering, dark route 
to me that that is the route of more suffering and it's and it's a it's a victimhood journey too it's pure victimhood it's I am a victim to my broken body and I am running to a savior to save me from it and and fix me and heal me and get me what I want. To me, that is a route of suffering and darkness and poor me and I have to take all these shots. Poor me. Everyone needs to feel bad for me because I chose this route of science. Everyone should feel bad for my choice and my broken body. But, But that's a choice. People don't recognize that it's a choice. And to me, it is a path of deep suffering. And sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you get pregnant from IVF. Sometimes you get pregnant from science, but not everybody. It, it, it is a path of a lot of heartache and poor me and victimhood that I don't want. So that's not what I choose. I choose to see the beauty in my current life and lean into trust that my body is so wise and it is doing this for a reason and I don't need to know why but I I can trust my body and I can trust God because that's what feels good that's what feels right to me we all have free will we all have the power of these choices in our life And I want my choices rooted in full trust. And and not getting pregnant is leading me there and has led me there. I have never felt more trusting of my body than I do right now. And more in love with my body than I do right now. And I still don't have what I want. But this is the greatest This is the greatest love story of a woman and her body and who you become when it's not doing what you want and it doesn't look how you want. Do you become at war with it? Or can you fall in love with it more? These are the choices that we have in our life. This is the free will of our life. I could be in the greatest space of victimhood right now, yelling from the rooftops that I'm not pregnant and I don't have a baby and I have to do IVF and everyone should feel sorry for me. That's a choice that's available to me. That's a path that's available to me. And instead, a love story with my own body is what I choose. And I think I vibrate that every day. My friends will tell you. And this is why I love life. Is because these are the choices that we get. We literally create our lives based on our choices with the shit we're handled. Can you become a more beautiful version of yourself when you're handed shit? Or are you going to become the biggest victim that distrusts life and hates life and you recoil at life and you don't want to have fun 
and you, and you don't want to connect with humans. We have all of these choices all of the time. Just stop blaming God and take responsibility for your choices.